Yeah, welcome back, everybody. Welcome to Searching for Political Identity. I am your host, Brian Escal. Someone said the other day, remember, every episode could be someone's first episode. So if you're new to the show, what is the show? It's me as I navigate my last year of law school and look at political issues, legal issues, and genuinely search for my own political identity. And in the process, I hope to, you know, I don't have any delusions of grandeur about bridging the political divide as wide as it is and real as it is, but playing my small part in trying to create an environment that is academic in a way, um, as opposed to outright, polit- out, you know, yes, political, but we can do it in a way that is way better than what you see on TV and what you hear on the radio. 90% of the time. So that's the point of the show. Today I've got a few things to talk about. Just uh, before I get into the meat and potatoes, I guess, I'll say I had a great workout today. And not only did I have that, but it was with a new friend. And the guy that I mentioned last week, Jay Ferugia, that mentor that I told you I had, funny, I didn't even realize it until just now. I guess like very shortly after I recorded that episode, Jay reached out to me and said, hey, I've got a dude that I'd like you to meet. And uh, he's from San Diego, also named Brian. He's doing one of Jay's programs right now. We met for a workout today. Super cool guy. And that's what Jay does. He connects people. So thanks, thanks, Jay. Um, yeah, so it was great to do a Jay workout. Haven't done one in a while. The bottom line is you got to take care of yourself. And uh, my, my man Jay would probably say that you got to get to the gym five days a week. And on the off days, the two days off, you should get some cardio in, like go for a hike, something like that. So important. And it was great to do it with a new friend, like I said. So very nice to meet you, Brian. Another Brian. That was nice. And also, before I get to the meat and potatoes of today's episode, which is going to be my thoughts on January 6, 2021, uh, we'll just stay in the well, first, I give you a little personal taste, all right? How do you like them apples? Went to the gym today. And then I have just to talk about Aaron Rodgers real quick and Alec Baldwin. First of all, I have more facts on the Alec Baldwin situation, so maybe I'll start with that. It's an absolute tragedy what happened. A couple days ago, maybe it was a week ago, I saw Alec and his wife um, get out to talk to paparazzi that were chasing them on the side of the road. And if you saw the video, the, the couple was like to the press, do you even know her name? You know, do you even know the victim's name? And they didn't. And they were like, it's Helena, Helena Hutchinson. So first of all, prayers 
to the family and thoughts and just, my goodness, what a tragedy. Okay, there's that. Then you have, it's just like, oh, the humanity. And now you have Trump attacking, of course, <laughs> Alec Baldwin. Did you hear what Trump said today? I think it was today. He basically said, you know, typical Trump. He just said, look, you have Alec Baldwin. They're not filming a scene. There isn't even another actor in the, in the vicinity. And basically Trump says, you know, for this to have happened, he had to have pointed the gun at her and pulled the trigger. And he was implying that it was intentional and saying Alex a bad guy, a crazy guy, got problems, so forth. And that's to be expected, right? But my God, I mean, what a, I mean, so what I think is interesting about this Alec Baldwin tragedy is you have an intersection of uh, movies and in real life with this gun situation, gun issue. And that's why it's penetrating pop culture so much. It's a crazy news story. And that investigation will be interesting to watch. And it's just a tragedy all the way around, regardless of how you feel about Alec Baldwin. But Trump's loving it, that's for sure. And it's pretty disgusting to just see unfold. Now, Aaron Rodgers, um, I have less information, but all I can say is I don't need to hang the guy. I mean, if he, like, for example, I'm a Vikings fan. I know Kirk Cousins is unvaccinated. So if Aaron Rodgers did something deceitful, wrong, you know, there should be repercussions for that, I suppose. But I don't care to see the guy hung, first of all. You know, I, I don't really care. I think that's a matter, uh, I guess, for the league to decide based on the health and safety of people of, involved. If you put people at enhanced risk, then, you know, there's going to be accountability. I would think, you would think, sadly, you know, terrible situation. So I don't know. If you put people at risk genuinely, then that's a problem. But I don't want to ridicule the guy. You know, I said on Twitter, this is a complex issue. And someone said, it's not complex. And I said, well, I get it. It's not complex. Look, I'm vaccinated. I mean, it, it wasn't complex for me. But this is tapping into people's psychology. And there is a legitimate bodily autonomy discussion to be had. But um, people are getting stuck on that. And so it's a trippy time. It's a crazy time. All I can tell you is I got vaccinated right away. Okay. And I consider myself a critical thinker. Aaron said he's a critical thinker, and I believe that. And so we all want to be, I hope we all aspire to be critical thinkers. But this is just an unparalleled situation, or at least for 100 years or so. So I say, poor Aaron Rodgers. Uh, caught in the crosshairs, as he would say. Um, but poor, I, I say poor Aaron Rodgers not because I, I want to relinquish him of, of accountability. No, he should be held accountable, and he will be, I hope. But socially, I don't, I don't need to stigmatize this guy. All right, so enough of that. So transitioning to 
I guess what I'd been calling the meat and potatoes of today's discussion or monologue. Here's my first question I wrote down. Is there a difference between, well, no, I just wrote the date, January 6, 2021. Okay, let me just talk about that for a second. I did watch the first and only the first 30 minutes of that documentary on HBO Max called Four Hours at the Capitol. And I will watch the rest of it tonight. But I saw enough of that initial breach of the Proud Boys when Trump was still speaking. I, got enough, I've seen, I saw enough of that to say a few things. So here we go. First of all, before I saw this footage, and I've had my head down in law school, I'm working, I'm not going to say I didn't see any footage of the Capitol riot, believe me. My opinion on the Capitol riot was formed that day. And I agree with Joe Biden, one of the darkest days, probably the, eh, one of the darkest days in our history. So don't get me wrong. But I didn't see this documentary. You know, I didn't see it. I didn't study frame by frame. I had seen enough on TV that day. But seeing it put this way, first I'll talk about the Proud Boys. Prior to seeing this footage, my thoughts on the Proud Boys, and I didn't know much about them, but and as you're watching this documentary, you know, it introduces the Proud Boys. And it's like, look, we're a male-only, pro-America values organization. We have certain beliefs. And it's like, look, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with having a men's club. You know, that is legal in this country. We could get into a whole legal discussion about equal protection and, what, you know, discrimination. But private clubs can discriminate against protected classes that other ins- public institutions cannot. So y- nothing wrong with a private club. Nothing wrong with a private club that has values that it wants to promote. I say that's healthy. And um, so look, they have their beliefs and that's fine. Maybe they're a little over the top, but whatever. You know, as long as they're not harming anyone, it's all good. And then you see this footage, and while Trump is still speaking, they just go to the Capitol, and they just whip them, well, they don't whip themselves up into a frenzy. They were whipped into a frenzy, and it built. And they committed what seemed to me to be pretty horrific acts of violence. I certainly assume criminal when they're hurting these female cops. doesn't matter that she was female. It's just all the more distasteful. You know, that they're ramming this woman police officer who's physically holding the barrier. It's like, are you kidding me? What an amazing cop. And what scumbags. And then they do it again. And it's just like the violence and the delusion. Well, let me back up. The violence, yes. The delusion, yes. But what what I'm saying is, all that you just see them get closer and closer. Okay. And it's one thing to protest, and it's one, but this is bad. This is bad. And it's violent and it's ugly. Real ugly. So they get to the Capitol, and they, you see the, the documentary follows this one guy. Well, they follow a bunch of guys. But there's this one guy, I'd say he's probably my age. I'm, I'll be 32 in a couple of days. 
I would say he's a little younger than me, year or two. And he was full on with the QAnon beliefs, and he said he looked very sincerely, disturbingly sincerely into the camera and said, I think the figure was 800,000 kids a year ago missing, and it's because they're you know, being sold, I assume, into the sex slavery operation. And he said, that's the thing that most Americans usually would have cared about back in the day. And it's like, well, fuck, man, excuse my language. If that's going on, you damn right we care about it. So there's that QAnon question, which is, is that going on? And I'm going to assume it isn't because there's, I've had no reason to, it just seems unlikely that there wouldn't be public outrage about that. So, but, but this guy and, and clearly the other QAnon members think Trump is a savior. And it was scary. And so you see the, the stare. First of all, this guy, this kid, goes into the rotunda at the Capitol and lights up a bowl, starts smoking weed. And then he's like, yeah, and I looked in my fanny pack and I realized I had seven joints. And it's like, you just realized you had seven joints? It seems like something you would be aware of the whole time. You know, what do I have on me? Well, I've got, among other things, seven joints. He's like, yeah, I realized I had seven joints. And I just passed them around and I said, do you smoke? Do you smoke? And he was like, it was pretty cool. And he was saying he de-escalated a lot of angry energy, which I have no doubt is true. But it's just... It was so bizarre and disgusting to see these people go on what they called, one of them called, a psychedelic tour through the Capitol. It's like, dude, you, you, you beat the shit out of cops to get there. You broke the windows down like wildebeest, and you, and you stormed the Capitol to, in your mind, stop the steal. There was nothing funny about it. There was nothing cute about it. There was nothing good about it. It was completely irredeemable. Now, I'm not making a judgment on all those individuals. <sighs> no, you have to. I guess that's a cop-out. You have to. You have to say that the... Do you go as far as to say those people are deplorables? I think you do. I don't think there's any way of getting around it. Those people. Not to say that they're deplorable, but th those people are a problem. Now, so that's my thoughts on January 6th. If not for the actions of a few brave officers, it could have been a lot worse. Now, was it handled poorly? It seems like if they had gotten more aggressive initially, it could have been prevented, but I guess it was happening really fast. And so ultimately, you look at that and you go, the people who stormed the Capitol are scumbag, delusional people. The cops are very brave. And Trump is, and company, 
should should really be ashamed of all of it, obviously. But something happened in that crowd. The Proud Boys, the, the Proud Boys went went way too far and and lost all any form of credibility they had for me. They went way too far. They committed many crimes, in my opinion, and disgraced our country. And it was bad. Now, the question is, is there a difference between the 1-6, the January 6 rioters, and the broader Trump supporter? Is it, oh, you know, before I moved on real quick, I was just going to say, that crowd, that Proud Boy crowd, with the QAnon vibe too, it became this ritual. They were euphoric. They became possessed. So it was an interesting day. And you might fear that in a sick way, that became just the beginning for that crowd. Um, so, yeah, legal punishment needs to come. Absolutely. No question about it. So the question then again is, is there a difference between the January 6th rioters and the broader Trump supporter? Is it fair to say they are all that, that they're basically a monolith? I don't think it's fair to do that. Okay, so the question is, how many of them are QAnon cultists? You know, I hate to judge people like that because I could get along with a QAnon person. Like, you want to you protect kids? Cool. You want to have faith in God? I respect the heck out of that. You want to preserve American values? I'm with it. So I could chill out with a QAnon person, I have no doubt. But this devotion is on another level to Trump. And they said themselves, they do view him as a, as a savior, a second only to, to Jesus. And so this is what's going on, because Trump, you know, did the, the, the brilliant, not the brilliant, but the, the devious thing, and he played religion real, real hard. So I do think there's absolutely a cult of personality around Trump, no question about it. I mean, there is a, there's clearly a cult of personality around Trump. On one hand, it's fascinating. On the other hand, it's terrifying. And we do need to fight against that. Not to say that people with religious values are, are bad. No, no, no. But this, this cult is bizarre, and, and it, can't be, it can't be good. Now, the broader Trump supporter... What, let me tell you about the broader Trump supporter, in my opinion, because, I don't know, I just assume most people listening to this are on the left because I'm engaging most on Twitter, and it's generally more left on there, as far as I can tell. Because I have friends who are Trump supporters, and look, let me tell you about them. They, they're traditionalists, yes. They're not jerks. They think Trump was unfairly persecuted from the beginning, validated by the way the Russia probe unfolded and ultimately fell apart. And um, you're not going to convince them that he wasn't screwed as a president. Now, you combine that with the fact that they do think he represents religious values. Imperfectly, sure. 
but they believe that this guy, you know, because of the way he put Supreme Court justices who are conservative and, and, and come from religious backgrounds, you might say, and maybe that's not fair, but you know what I mean, put on Federalist Society judges who are thought to, presumed to, vote against liberties that are seemingly anti-Catholic. You know what I mean? So he put his money where his mouth was, Trump. He put those judges on the bench. So, so you could see how, man, my candidate got screwed by the system. He's an outsider. They wanted to crush him because he's a populist. And he happens to be a man of faith imperfectly. And I am all about that. And you just get on Team Red. Now you're on Team Red. But these Trump supporters, not the ones that are QAnon freaks, but, and I say that respectfully, like, I'm not trying to make any enemies here. And I'm certainly not trying to be judgmental. This is as close as I've come to being declarative on this podcast. But I watched that, the beginning of that um, documentary, and it's like, no, man, got to stay something got to say something that is absurd so back to the question of is there a distinction between those january 6th trump supporters and say like a reagan type republican that supports trump because i don't think the reagan republicans were there at the capitol that day but a lot of them voted for trump right what did he get um like 70 million votes or Something like that, right? 72, something like that. 70 million votes, so whatever it was. What does that say about our country? Well, yeah, I think QAnon has a presence and that cult is real. How big is it? I don't know. But I just want to remember that there is a person in this country, 70 million or so of them, that view Trump as a constitutional conservative, and you can laugh at that, and you sure can. But they say, you know what, this guy governed uh, like a constitutional conservative, he likes states' rights, he doesn't take away my guns, he's pro-business, he's doing the tax cuts for the right classes of people, because that's the economic theory that I believe in. I believe in, you know, I'm saying who is the Trump supporter. Trump supporter is someone who, you know, in one sense, it's a classic Republican. For all those reasons, you know, self-sufficiency, no social programs or limited social programs. Um, And I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm not saying it's right. I'm I'm a liberal. I'm Democrat. I have to embrace it. I'm actually a registered independent. But on social... Issues, I'm very progressive. You know, I don't care about people living their realities out and having equal rights. No, I do care about that. I need that to happen. So that's where I stand on social issues, but it's a question of economic policy. And um, look, these Trump supporters, they think. You know, it is that classical, traditional Republican view. You got to work for it. And I'm not saying they're right, as I, as I just said. 
but they believe it. And there is so on top of the traditional Republican platform that Trump runs on, he has that added element of religion, that undertone of religion. And so even beyond QAnon type supporters, there is this sense of religious tension in the country. And I do think that among the broader Trump supporters, there is another level of, I might call them, not aggressively religious. That isn't the word I want to use. But religious to the point where they think that the country should have a normative, I'm going to use a stupid word there, the, the country's the country should function basically in alignment with Judeo-Christian principles. And so there's a whole other discussion there to be had about the interplay between religion and law. And obviously there's a steel curtain there in one sense, but in the other sense, in our country, you have freedom of religion. But look, I mean, our society in my opinion, is and needs to be a-religious. Um, on the other hand, you know, of course, the history, you know, the first law that I'm aware of is, is the Bible, right? I mean, I went to Hebrew school as a youngster, and I was coached up in the Old Testament, and you learn about that, and, and the reality is religion was law. There's, there's an interplay there. So that's obviously why it's so important to maintain the a-religiousness of our law. But I, I just talk about religion because it's there. It's this looming presence, right? It's the origination of our rights. I mean, whatever you think about the Founding Fathers and the founding documents, our rights, and whether or not our rights are in fact, inalienable and given to us by God. That's the history. And it comes from a Judeo-Christian background. And so I think a lot of these Trump supporters are just saying, hey, yeah, we just want to keep that going. You know, you want to be a transgender, and I don't mean to be cavalier and disrespectful, but I'm, I'm just doing this act here, right? You want to be yourself transgender? Fine. But don't make me put the bathroom signs gender neutral. Don't make the norm. And so that's what I think we're going through right now, for sure, clearly, is this social transformation where, and it is part of the equity dynamic, equity concept that is uh, so critical, no pun intended, a component of critical race theory, critical theory. And I'll do a whole other episode and, a long, and an essay on critical race theory, but it's just basically to say, look, man, the norm has been straight, white, male, uh, Christian, Judeo-Christian, but mostly Christian society, structure. And critical theory is just saying, look, that's not everyone's norm. That's not the norm. And my response to learning about critical theory has been, man, I thought we were already living in a diverse, multicultural America, but... It's all about getting exposed to different people's experiences. 
And that is not the case, apparently. And so, but this Trump thing, religion, and so the culture war, sadly, you know, I don't want to call it a culture war. I don't want to contribute to a culture war. I'm observing, however, that I think a broad swath of Trump supporters do feel religious, probably Catholic or Christian. I'm Jewish. I don't know, so I don't know the terms. But, and they revere Trump, and they think he's protecting the country from what? From godlessness. Not from people of color or gay people in particular. I think I'm going to stand up for the Trump supporter here and say, if I'm the Trump supporter, I'm saying, look, I just want to protect God. You know, I understand we're, we're living in a country where there's a separation of religion and society, clearly. But Trump supporter would say, you know, our society is, too, based on rights given by God. And so there is a role of God, and we don't want to lose it. And I think when you look at it that way, you can understand the fear in the Trump supporter. What are we, what's at stake? God. Is that reasonable? I don't think it's reasonable. I don't think it's reasonable at all. Okay, I'm just going to be straight up with you. Um, I think, I don't think it's, I don't think it's completely crazy. I understand. Like if you're a devout Christian and you believe abortion is wrong, I, I understand how, I think I understand how painful that reality is, that people are getting abortions. But ultimately, it's like, look, you are not in charge of the country. Uh, your religious doctrine is not in charge of the country. Abortion's tough, right? Because it involves, to these devout Christians, Catholics, it's, it's and other religious people, it's a, it's a soul. So that's serious business. So it's a hard loss for them. And yeah, they're just really afraid of losing God in society. And so I hope you can understand that a little bit. Not saying it's rational, but I think that's who they are. Now, are they racist? Because I'm willing to paint them with a broad brush to the extent that I just did by saying, yeah, I think there's a religious component to to Trump's support, broadly. Am I willing to paint in a much much narrower brush a small subject as the QAnon cultists, right? Now the question is for me next, am I also willing to paint those Trump supporters with a broad broad brush regarding racism? like so many on the left do. <sighs> That's a tough one because I'm, 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 I'm pretty young. I'll be 32 in a couple of days. I'm, a, I'm Jewish. I guess you would call me a white man, white male. And I'm aware of history, but I didn't live the civil rights movement. You know what I'm saying? So I've kind of naively grown up in this mindset where I just thought everything was cool. And I'm tempted to say my first reaction is, no, my friends are not racist. The broad Trump supporter is not racist. 
they they just feel like I said already that their guy that they actually liked was hosed by the political system, concocted Russia story, and imagine your guy, your outsider, they tried to take him down like that. And then everything else, like I said, next thing you know, you're on Team Red, and, you're on, and Team Trump is Team Red, and Trump's got this religious culture war vibe going, and the result is a, a pretty angry, fearful base. The worst of which showed up on January 6th, 2021. So again, broadly to the people that support him, no, they're not bad people. They're not bad people. And I don't think they're racist, broadly. I think they support Republican conservative structure, which you can argue, okay, here's the thing, critical race theory, and many on the left today would say, the structures themselves are racist. So if you support the status quo, you're either racist or racist by affiliation. Is that fair? Oof. That's a tough question. Because if it's fair, then you just got to say, okay, my friends are ignorant, and all the conservatives, all Republicans are ignorant. And it's our mission. it should be our mission then to educate them and say, look how bad society is. Look how, for, for let's say, people of color, for, for this group, transgender, pick a marginalized group, and it becomes our mission then to say, Republicans, look at how bad life is for these groups. It's unfair. It's unfair. We need to do something about it, regardless of what legal obstacles, legal formalism, rules stand in the way. So is it true? Is the main thrust of critical race theory true? Is society racist? And not in this cheap facial way, like, obviously society is not racist on the books today. We've, we've made those corrections, right? For sure. But is, are we living in a society still in which those marginalized groups are still marginalized and are in a position that is much worse compared to, let's say, white men. In other words, are the impacts of this society such that we still have these groups, people of color, trans, women, so on, that aren't given a fair shot? us of critical race theory that we do and that we need to do something about it and the conservative would say well no we're living in a free society anyone can rise up in america civil rights legislation exists and it protects people who were traditionally not protected so what else do you want come on they're saying come on i mean what do you want to you want to change the structure of our government? You want to 
they look at it as you want to use judges to make policy critical theorists you want to bring equity by changing the form of our government by you know they're saying look the, the, the conservatives are saying you want to make change we'll get it done uh, legislatively and if you want to do it get it done but don't have judges make policy that's not their role so that's a component of critical key component of critical race theory i think which is saying the congress ain't going to do it they're bought and sold by big money and they're the structure itself is born from a racist era and as a result can't fix itself you need to do something radical change the structure of the government and the conservative will say look that's too, I'm not, I fear that. I don't want to lose the structure of my government. I don't want to lose God more than God is already out of government. I don't want, I don't know what's next. If you want to change the rules and, and, and change policies and like you get into critical race theory another time deeply, but bottom line is critical race theory is a sophisticated intellectual framework that basically says, look, guys, society is still structured in such a way that these traditionally marginalized groups are still marginalized. And obviously, that's not right. So then the question is, what are we going to do about it? It's called anti-objectivity, by the way. That's the main thrust of critical race theory. That, no, we're not living in an objective society where it's just, hey, you're judged by your conduct. This concept of critical race theory is, anti-objectivity. That's not the society we're living. We're living, we're not living in a colorblind society is step one in critical race theory. Okay. Then you have, what are you going to do about it? And it's a sophisticated, like I said, it's a sophisticated intellectual framework. It really is. And there's a lot of tools in the toolbox suggested by critical race theory. Some of them are not controversial at all. Some of them are controversial. So it's a, it, it opens your eyes to the impacts the law has had on groups. And the conservative will say, well, these groups, they got to help themselves. I mean, in time, they will. And that's like what a Justice Clarence Thomas will say. He's not a critical theorist. He's a conservative, right? He's against affirmative action. He's like, no, you, you, you will rise up in time. And, but the critical theorists would say that Clarence Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas, is, is not the norm. The norm would say, frankly, and I, don't, I hate to say this, but the norm person of color, this is the critical race theory, and this is why they get accused of identity politics, because they say the law is not colorblind. Let's not be cute here. Let's talk about people of color, and let's say that the normal person of color, quote-unquote, would say that the law is still, society is still racist, and that therefore something radical needs to be done about it, unlike Clarence Thomas. So if Clarence Thomas was a critical race theorist, he might support affirmative action, and he might support race-conscious policies that would, quote-unquote, give people of color and other groups a leg up. 
Yeah. So it's a lot to drink in and there's a lot to it, a lot more than that. And as I said, I'm going to repeat it. Some of the tools in that toolbox are very reasonable, quite reasonable, more than reasonable. And some of them are more controversial. And that, what I mean by that is, if you give a judge the power to craft policy and change our society, the conservatives will say, well, what's the stopping point for that? What, what's to stop a judge from saying private property is illegal, right? And then they go, that's where the doors come open to. They want to do communism. They want to do socialism. Because if you give judges power to make the laws, rather than the traditional process of the two houses of Congress getting together, and then the president signing it. Who's to stop a judge from doing something radical, right? Or if, they, if you have a sufficient number of judges on the Supreme Court. So that's why they liked what Trump did on the Supreme Court. And it's just a question of, do you like the traditional structure of our country? Do you think it's serving us well? Or do you not? Do you think it's possible through the traditional process to bring about the changes that are necessary, the progressive changes that you need, or do you not? Um, legal scholars would call this activism by lit litigation, or um, what was it? Yeah, progress by litigation, or oh, politics by litigation, right? Because politics, the conservative would say, look, you want to get a change? want to expand the social safety net, et cetera, would do something else progressive, get the majority, get the process in motion and pass it. If you've got a sufficient majority and the progressives will say, no, a sufficient majority supports universal health care and we can't get Congress to pass it. So then right there, you can see how on a 30,000 foot level, it's like, if you see a poll and it says 60% or 70%, whatever it is, of Americans support universal health care and we don't have it, it be, you know, should we be a direct democracy? Well, we're not, we're not a direct democracy, right? Obviously, we're not. So we have this process in which it's difficult to make changes, to make big changes. And the criticalists would say, we, don't, we can't wait. We have a moral imperative to go the judicial route and have politics by litigation and have judges make policy. And the conservative is afraid of that because then their fear is, you're, you're going to take my property, you're going to take my God, you're going to take my guns. So do you understand a little bit more now? The mindset, it's a conservative person. And it's not that they necessarily hate the transgender person or they hate the gay person they, or they're the racist. I don't think that's the broad swath of Trump supporters. I think the broad swath is at least mildly religious, and they, they want, they do fear. Now, critical race theory, though it's not taught in kindergarten and middle school, et cetera, it is a potentially powerful concept that does potentially have the power to transform society. So it's not totally irrational for these Trump supporters to fear that the Democrats, the libs, 
want to turn their society upside down improperly, through, not through the legit process. That's where critical theory, I think, runs into a problem, is when it, when it tries to go the judicial route. But the whole point of critical race theory is, I think, to say, the traditional process isn't doing it. It's broken. If it's not racist on its face, it's racist in effect. And it ain't changing. So F that. We're going to the justices for justice, for equity, because equity is a concept in law, right? You had legal court, you have courts of law in England, and you had courts of equity. And we could talk all about that, but it's a fascinating history, the, the English courts. And uh, maybe I'll do an episode about, about that, but at some point, in our society, the courts merged, and we have one court, and there is a concept of equity to be considered in any legal case, right? And so the critical theorist appeals to the judges, um, shoot, dare I say oath to equity, <laughs> um, and says, we need help. We need help. We can't get it the traditional way. We're, we're screwed here. And you need to give us relief because we're citizens and we deserve equal treatment. And that's when you go, well, well, do they have equal treatment? But we deserve not equality, but equity. We need equity right now. And so the best case I can make for a criticalist is when you're trying to persuade someone that critical theory is good, you say, look, it's not that you're racist. It's not that society is racist. Clearly, our, our laws are neutral on its face, but we're still living in a society in which you've got these marginalized groups and they're impacted different, on different levels, disproportionate levels compared to, um, say, um, average white citizen. Now, I don't know if that's true, all right? But I'm going to just take it as true, okay? And that's definitely the thrust of the theory, and I believe it. I'm going to take it as true. I haven't seen the stats myself, but I, I'm going to take it as true. And so you say, look, guys, you're not racist. Society's not racist, but we're still living in a society in which these groups are, are struggling disproportionately. And so although equal treatment is the ideal, and we eventually will end up there, swear an oath to get there, we can't do equal treatment right now because we're still living with the unfairness from the past, believe it or not even in 2021. So we need equity right now. We need booster programs for people of color, women, so on. Transgender, um, representation. We need maybe even as quotas. And we'll go into talk about quotas another time. But you, you think you'd be so allergic to the concept of a quota, right? You don't wake up one day and say, I want to have 30% transgender, 40% Asians, 60 you know, It's like, come on. No one wants to... Res reduce human association to mathematical formula. But the point is, for the criticalists, is not that they want equity, and this is how I would pitch it to people, and say, look, it's not about equity permanently. It's not about booster programs permanently. It's not about attacking white people. It's about putting a timeline on programs that will boost marginalized groups until we can get to a place 
where we dissolve them and return to equal, equal treatment, equal quality as the standard rather than trying to achieve equity. So it's a big topic, big, big topic. It's very controversial. It's not, yeah, it is controversial. It's very intense because you have the potential to transform society. Technically, and some people are really scared of that. So I just think it's a matter of communication, education, mutual respect, and not demonizing each other. It, it ain't helping. So stop the demonization. And just like Twitter is not exactly the whole of reality, the January 6th rioters are not exactly the whole of the Trump supporters. So there's room for nuance here. There's room to talk. Definitely not suggesting that people will ultimately agree on things. Like there is a divide in the country, no doubt. But I think it, it, it is unnecessarily inflamed right now. I think it can be, we can reduce that inflammation. That's all I aim to do, is reduce the unnecessary inflammation through respectful discussion, love of country. What else can I say, right? That's all I'm trying to do. So I guess the purpose of this, or the takeaway from this episode is, take a step back, and everybody, take a step back, And make sure you're treating your political opponents as human. And if you do that, then from there, the disagreements will be in good faith. And that's fine. And I'm confident we can can continue to work through those as a country. But it's hot. It's it's a hot. The, The temperature's hot in the country for good reason. People are struggling, right? They're always struggling. They've been struggling. And the suggestion from the criticalists is, it's, it's not fair, it's not right. Something can be done about it, something should be done about it, something must be done about it. Where is your heart? Where is your soul? How can you be so blind to the struggles of impoverished, marginalized people in our country? The wealthiest nation in the world. These people, the criticalists are saying, the, the hell with our structure. If, if our structure can't provide for those people, then it is racist. That's the bottom line. That's the essence of critical race theory. If you think I've misrepresented it, I apologize, and I am absolutely open to being corrected. So look forward to hearing from you and seeing you next week. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate you. Peace.